Okay, uh, hi and welcome to A Woman's Place. Um, great to have you back here again. My name is Christina. Um, I am the resident something. I don't know. Actually, I don't have an intro and I've given Sarika a hard time about it. But here is Sarika introducing herself. Hi, um, welcome back. And if this is your first time listening, welcome. Um, I'm Sarika and I tend to stick to the historical while mm. Christina tends to talk about the geopolitical and the kind of socio-psychological part of whatever the topic is that we're oh, discussing. That's very generous. So, yeah. Well, it's true. Um, so this week we're talking about women's mental health and kind of looking at it in a modern day phenomenon and where did the phenomenons that we know today come from? Mm-hmm. Um, there was actually a an article that was posted very recently um, from I think it was Roisin Ingle post wrote it. Oh no, Sabrina Brennan and the Irish um, Times: Medical Gaslighting. The women who uh, n- women not listened to are viewed as over over dramatizing or uh, catastrophizing. That's a terrible headline, um, but it just just notes about like the different ways women are it's misinterpreted so like they'll how how heart attack for instance presents differently in men than women and often women women are more likely to suffer a heart attack yet are more likely to be sent home whilst they're having an active heart attack because a lot of times their symptoms are attributed to anxiety or mental health um when they're actually just having a heart attack but um there's uh there's issues around like um uh disabilities or how would you say that like because I, I don't really classify like autism or adhd as a disability what do you classify that as learning difficulty learning difficulty. or a or a just a condition yeah so like so like autism instance, would be a condition and okay. adhd is a difficulty i see yeah it's funny because i don't really see them like that myself but anyway um, that ADHD presents completely differently in men than it does in women or girls as it does in boys. And this leads to like lack of um, diagnosis, um, attributing um, symptoms to like... Personality types. Yes, and stuff like that. So, um, Sarika, what did you want to start off with? When... Yeah, so I suppose like... When we think about kind of our mental health treatment today, um, we have to look at like how we got here, like everything else, you know, and we also have to look at our journey here, which in in most like most medical and kind of um, economic uh, issues uh, of which mental health, as we'll see in this podcast, is, is has been both throughout history, um, how women have kind of been either ignored as in their symptoms are ignored or they're ignored through the diagnosis process so just like christina said a female heart attack presents differently to a male heart attack there's also quite a lot of other um you know uh, mental health issues that present differently in men than women and most of the studies and trials and experiments have been done on men mm-hmm. you know so a lot of the mental health treatments that we have especially say before our current time, maybe starting 60 years ago and going back another hundred years, we're all aimed at, at fixing, fixing men and kind of let's just lock the women up. Yeah. So 
um, there's four kind of main conceptions of mental illness um, and they are cyclical, ra cyclical rather than linear. So the first one is the supernatural theory. And I think like we can all imagine this back, you know, 10,000, 6,000 years ago where they had no idea where mental illness came from and mm -hmm. they saw it as a gift or a curse from the gods or you were possessed by an evil spirit or something like that. And they would try and treat it, as you would imagine, through prayer or through, um, you know, hallucinogens or through uh, some form of, of, um, of treatment to get the, the evil out of you. So that's, that's kind of one. And you still even see this in some parts of the world today with regard to mental illness. People believe that the affected person is, you know, possessed by spirit or is evil. Um, yeah. The second one is an organic concept. So it's like if something is wrong with the mind, something must be wrong with the body, uh, either through genetics, accidents or illnesses. And um, there's kind of this idea that you're unbalanced. So the Chinese have the idea of yin and yang. And the, in Europe, the Greeks had the idea of the four humors, that your body was made up of four different humors. And if they weren't in balance, uh, that's what caused a mental illness with you. Mm, um, actually, just on that point, um, the the humor is like I think it's the bloodletting one. Which what one is that? The sanguine? Is it sanguine? Yes. Yeah. 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 Because song is for the word um, for blood. But um, I think it's interesting. The bloodletting of today is like the cutting yourself, which is yeah. Kind of like I I mean modern manifestation of it in a way. It's 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 crazy how that like still the bloodletting is still I mean it's just a point an observation how that like how people let their blood in a way to give them relief of when it, you know associated with mental illness. Yeah, it is quite it, it's you know self harm is not just something that people do um, who are you know angry or depressed it, it comes like across a wide mm -hmm. spectrum of mental illnesses and it's all about that kind of having control mm -hmm. um and relief as you said um like the third one kind of goes with 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 that idea is that the third kind of idea of mental illness is that it's psychogenic so something very traumatic or very stressful happened to you and that's why you have a mental illness that would be mm -hmm. one of the one of the cyclical beliefs and then the last one is our one, the one that we are currently in, and it's the biopsychosocial bio model. So it's the idea, as we all know today, of our modern idea of what causes mental illness. Sometimes it's genetics. Sometimes it's traumatizing experiences. Sometimes it's just the way you are. Sometimes it's something that happened to you, you know, and it's, it's all interconnected, shall we say. Yeah, it's like, actually, it's probably a combination of all of those things. In many cases. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So um, what we see is a couple of different interpretations over time. So the Egyptians spoke about mental illness, the Mesopotamians spoke about mental illness, and the kind of most, the earliest and probably most famous of those is um, the Greeks who classified mental illness as, um, who classified the mentally ill as not being in control of themselves. Mm -hmm. So very different from and the la like the, the next 3,000 years, the ancient Greeks saw a mentally ill person as somebody who you, the family had to take care of them, um, the family had to provide for them, and they were not to be held accountable for what they, what they said or did. Yeah. Um, which for, like I know the ancient Greeks were very enlightened, but 
for nearly 6,000 years ago, that's, that's a really, like, that's a quite good model. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like that's, we're that's still not there today. Than, <laughs> exactly. Um, it's yeah. better than what we're, it's better than what we're going to see. So, um, basically by the late, you know, we always talk like, we always talk about the, the, the geopolitics, you know, um, and the kind of the way the religion intersperses with all of our geopolitical issues. And this is kind of very, very true of mental illness. So in the Middle Ages, um, with the power of the Roman Catholic Church, um, the supernatural theory became really popular. The okay. idea that you were mentally ill because you were, you know, possessed by a demon or you were um, possessed by the devil. And these became the basically the, the number one theory of mental mm -hmm. illness. And this is when we start to see um, a huge amount of natural disasters. So there was the plague, obviously really bad. And then the, in the years following the plague across Europe, there were some really bad famines. There were some very bad floods. And the Roman Catholic Church really kept up this idea that it was because of evil, because of the devil. And so this culminated in um, around uh, 1400, where in, in the 1400s, Pope Innocent VIII published a, a papal bull, which acknowledged the existence of witches and explicitly empowered the, the Inquisition to prosecute witches and sorcerers. And most of the people who were accused of witchcraft were women, obviously, but quite a lot of them would be would have been considered mentally ill today so we've, we've already seen here like the con connection of mental illness and control very much so yeah um so the the whole the whole inquisition in general was to find enemies of the church and the people who were tasked to do that were archbishops bishops um and then you'd have kind of these rogue monks and they would literally roam around Europe and anybody that they saw, so any women acting overtly sexual, witches, kill them. Kill them. Kill them all, yeah. Any women who were disobeying their husbands or, you know, not doing what they were supposed to be doing, um, witches, kill them, kill them all. Okay. Uh, anybody who spoke out about the church. Now, they, they did... They, in these witch trials, they did put men on trial, but it's one in 10, you know? Probably the vast... there was a political reason for that. Or, yes, very yeah, much so. And as, you know, as we see with every kind of, um, every kind of madness that, that takes over society, the, there's always a um, greed and political element to it, you know? So like you said, I'm going to get rid of this man so that I can have his farm or so that I get to be the next mayor or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. There's always that element, you know? And um, while I was doing my research, I came across a very interesting book um, called The Malus Malficarium, which translates to The Hammer of Witches, Ooh. which was written by... T I know it sounds really good, but it's not. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, it was written by two Dominican monks as the ultimate manual for witch hunting. So one of the things they recommended, which was torture which, to encourage witches to confess. And I think as we all know, torture doesn't work. You, you know, 
torture people will say anything to stop you from torturing them. Yeah. So they got a lot of, they got a lot of confessions. Um, but this was the first book that explicitly said that women were witches, not men. Okay. There's no real point in going after the men. This is only women. And while doing my research, I came across a really interesting story about one of the authors and I just have to share it. Okay. So one of the authors was a guy named Kramer and he was involved in seeking out witches and putting them on trial in Germany. So he went to the town of Innsbruck, which is in modern day Austria and began preaching there. And one of the women in the town, Helena Schuberin, who was described as an aggressive, independent woman, not afraid to speak her mind, passed Kramer in the street and didn't like what he was preaching. So she spat on him, cursed him, um, cursed him in public. And she refused to attend his sermons and encouraged others to do the same. Can you take a wild guess as to what's going to happen here? Is she going to be burned or something? So um, Helena and 14 other women were put on trial for witchcraft. Okay. And they were, they were basically, um, some of them were acquitted and some of them were let off with quite, quite, quite easy sentences, you know, pay five gold marks or whatever. Like it wasn't, they, they weren't, it wasn't a big deal. You know, the town very quickly got over it, but he couldn't let it go. Kamer could not let it go. Okay. He became obsessed with this woman, Helena. Um, he wrote dozens of letters to other Dominicans where he vilified her. He stalked her. He spied on her. He became obsessed with her sexual history. He kept trying to get her retried for sorcery. And he was actually expelled from the town of Innsbruck because the bishop was like, you're obsessed with this woman. You need to let it go. And he wouldn't. So he actually expelled him from the town. And then the next year, he wrote The Hammer of Witches. Like, oh, stop. How spiteful. Like, how petty and how so, spiteful can you be? He wrote this book about how to prosecute catch torture and kill witches oh it's like a fantasy novel basically about this woman a hundred percent like oh, how sad oh my god that is and wild. obviously unbeknownst to poor helena shrubin she she basically between the two of them they basically set a precedent the tone. <gasps> they yeah this book set the tone for the next nearly 300 years where over a hundred thousand witches were burned in Europe. A hundred thousand. That is, oh my God, I would be so burned alive. I'd be flayed. Like, oh my yeah. God. Yeah. So if you're like, so if you match this archetype of a, like, and it just so Of happens, a strong, yeah. outspoken woman. Um, who's sexually deviant because he believed that Helena Shrubin, even though she was married, he believed she was sexually deviant. And this, the, she was the checklist basically for, it was, it, he might as well have just drawn a picture of her. You know what I mean? And been like, if you see this bitch, burn her. Like, it, wow. it was like a form of revenge that lasted 300 years and condemned 100,000 women to death. To being burnt at the stake like you know that now they didn't just burn witches wild. they did lots of other stuff too um and i think we all know about the salem witch trials so i'm not even going to go into them but yeah. a lot of the women that were accused outside of the spectrum of say a hateful husband or a jealous neighbor 
were women who had mental illnesses, okay. who were unusual, who spoke their minds or who displayed unusual behavior, you know? And this is where we really start to see a kind of a, a turn towards um, mental illness being used as a way to either shut up or control, control women. women. Because yes. I was just going to say, it's just like what you're describing is a kind of social control of its own on other women. You know what I mean? So it's like, it, okay, you're not just going to kill off the, the independent, like outspoken women, but you're also killing off the other women who might be like that. You know what I mean? By just getting yeah. them to repress their themselves. And that sets a tone of like, this is how women should behave. Because this, this is what, so like the, the submissive, quiet woman in a way could have been, could have originated from, it's like a survival strategy. I definitely believe so. I believe that there were huge amounts of women who, you know, if you see something as horrific as a, as a, as a witch, like someone killing a witch, either through drowning or stoning or crushing or burning or whatever, if you see something like that as a, as a young girl or as a teenager and you know that she that happened to her because she defied her father or that happened to her because she wouldn't get married to someone her father wanted her to marry you would shut the fuck up like do you, you know, know like or like imagine imagine you being a mother how much you would discipline you try and discipline your daughter or like discipline your daughter if you're a father how much you are like you need to you need to stop you know what I mean? Like yeah. there'd be an immense amount of like self-policing, family policing and community and, co you know, co community policing just as a way of survival. That is yeah. wild. Yeah. Just one dude. Well, actually two dudes. It was two, two Dominican monks wrote it, but it was Kamer who was like the most obsessed with it, you know? And it basically wow. became like a handbook. It yeah. sold hundreds and hundreds of copies, thousands of copies. And during the real kind of heyday of the witch trials, the late 1500s and through the 1600s, like this is what they were using to, to find witches and kill them. Um, and it was very often that these would kind of really prick up after a famine, after a bad harvest, after, you know, a church fire, anything that was deemed to not be the people's fault because they were so godly it had to be somebody specific who did this to the town you know mm. or who did this to the harvest or whatever so you see them quite a lot in times of disaster um and and that kind of that kind of control of women translated differently after the um after the kind of uh, 1600s the mad heyday it started to to, to be very different so we have um, poor laws that were enacted in many countries. So a poor law was the government's very, very feeble attempt at charity. And it was this idea that um, the local government had the power to control and confine those who were too poor or unwell to take care of themselves. So this is where you see like workhouses popping up. Okay. Um, and obviously the, the huge economic wealth that comes with workhouses because you have free labor you don't have to mm -hmm. feed them you don't have to mind them um, and they'll work till they die because they can't leave the workhouse because you're not allowed 
So they began popping up all over Europe um, and in England and Ireland and in many, many places in Ireland today. You can so still see tenement houses? No. no. Workhouses are... Um, so workhouses are usually in rural areas. There's not the in cities they blend in. In rural areas, there are these huge buildings that stand out. Now there's not very many of them left in Ireland, and I'll explain why in a second. But a workhouse is basically a um, a big building that has two to three dormitories, one for men, one for women, and one for children. They're mm. separated. So when you go into the workhouse, it's your last resort. It means that you are homeless and starving, and that you're going to die if you don't go in there. And going in there means you're signing away your freedom. So your family is separated from each other and you'll never see them again. You work on things like um, unpicking ship rope to separate it and sell the rope um, once you've picked all the tar and sea salt off it. Um, making things like boxes, wooden boxes, something that's very, very easy to do doesn't require a lot of concentration, but is extremely labor intensive. Mm -hmm. And that's why they get the people in the workhouse to do it. So the people in the workhouse weren't paid and they kind of lived off a diet of like porridge and watery soup. And the people who ran the workhouse would be paid by the local government for taking the people in. And then they would also be paid for the products that they produced. So they're like a very early form of industrial school. Mm. So... Um, the workhouses were big business and one of the reasons why there is so many in Ireland but very few of them are, um, are you know, museums or anything is because after the famine, um, they were, there were so many people died in the workhouses in the famine that they became, that people actually, they, they filled them up so much that when the doors were closed, you know, there was not an inch left inside and there were still 100,000 people outside trying to get in because they were starving to death. Oh so God. during the um the rising and the revolution a lot of them were burnt to the ground as they should be yeah they're um they were places where the most miserable wretches ended their lives through just just from the second you went in the door until you died it was just sheer misery absolute misery wow. so the work yeah horrific absolutely horrific just just horrible the last workhouses in England closed in like the 1930s. So like a long time, you know, obviously we had our own form of the workhouses through industrial schools and Magdalene laundries, mm -hmm. but they weren't exactly the same. Yeah. Um, so these, um, these workhouses began to take in everybody. And soon they realized that like, you know, people who have mental illnesses or who appear to have mental illnesses aren't going to work for you. So they're not worth feeding. Um, but they still can't be just thrown out in the street. So asylums began to be opened. The most famous asylum is probably um, St. Mary's of Bethlehem in London, which is kind of commonly referred to as Bedlam. That's mm -hmm. where the, the phrase comes from. And that opened um, by as early as 1400, they began to take lunatics, as they're called yeah. in hospital records. Um, it was horrible. It was, a, it was opulent from the outside. If you ever look up a picture of, of um, the, the Bedlam that was built in the 1670s, it is like a palace, it's beautiful. But inside was horrific. So they now began to differentiate between if you're, as they called them, lunatics, you go to the asylum. And if you're not, you go to the workhouse. So they would literally kind of sweep the streets and be like, you there sleeping rough. Um, you're going to one of these two places and you signed away your freedom, you know? Yeah. Criminals usually wouldn't be sent to a workhouse or nor to the asylum. 
there wasn't like the criminally insane that wasn't really a thing back then you know they just yeah. send you to prison or kill you so um yeah so the asylums um were pu- public and private and what began to happen over time was um at the beginning men and women were incarcerated at the same rate you know they would just sweep up all these undesirable undesirables um, but what would happen then was that um the, the the ratio of men to women you know began to vastly increase in the favor of women so more and more and more women were being locked up um, in asylums mm-hmm. and from particularly in the victorian era um women were locked up for basically anything so for really anything at all just a question here would the the legacy of the witch trials be still relevant so like obviously still relevant but still like if i'm looking for a lunatic am i am i still using some of this criteria to determine who's a lunatic or is it just people who are quote unquote actually have mental illness so um, you wouldn't have, like, nobody was following the hammer of witches to put people in asylums, but the, you know, you don't have to be following the book to hear the ideas of the book. Or, so that, the book, do, or that the ideas still live on in you and live on in culture. Precisely. So it was kind of, um, it was this idea at the time, the, the prevailing idea was that, you know, something wrong with the body, something wrong with the mind. Mm-hmm. So that was how they tried to treat mental illness. And so they would believe that, say, a woman who spoke above her station, get her in the asylum. Yeah. A woman who won't marry who you want them to marry, get her in the asylum. Mm-hmm. Um, and then obviously there were women with genuine, um, you know, genuine mental illnesses like depression or post-traumatic stress or postpartum who could have easily, you know, not been put in the asylum, but because they were quote unquote difficult or whatever, maybe they, they were um, what they used to call, you know, unfit mothers. Mm-hmm. Um, and they, they just put them in the asylum then. And this, this basically start, it was like, it was like a torture chamber because of this kind of prevailing somatogenic treatment. Like they believed that they had to shock the body to fix the mind so, so this is where you see things are we around now all kind of um we're talking maybe like from the 1800s onwards okay. yeah 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 so this is kind of what we see you know it's what we see in horror films that are set in old mental asylums those kind of ones where um every patient yeah probably has a room to themselves or maybe they share two to a room but they're subjected to things like ice baths and mm-hmm. lobotomies and uh, being starved and being chained up and being beaten and things like that. Um, and this, this was a real problem for women across all classes. So there were working class women who were sent to silence by their husbands, middle class and upper class women who were, well, middle class didn't really exist very much at this time, but it, it was a cross, a cross class um, and cross culture um, thing to put your, put your wife in an asylum if she was being difficult and only you could take her back out again. So yeah. there was, there was no way for her to prove her sanity. Mm-hmm. There was no process for you to prove your sanity. Okay. So as in like, so you could be in there indefinitely, completely sane and like the doctors are not going to assess you? No, not at all. Oh, wow. You, I, I don't even think they saw doctors really, you know, except treatment. to be experimented on. 
that was about it wow um so that began happening um and more and more women were being locked up and it was a very unspoken about thing and the reason that it was even known is because places like bedlam and other big asylums um, opened their doors and literally people used to pay to go in and look at the people that like were incarcerated zoo. there like a human zoo you know the victorians loved their human zoos and that is what it was. It, it was where they would pay an admission and they would go in and they'd all be in their cells and the people would look at them and, you know, that would be their day out in London or their day out at Bedlam or wherever, whatever asylum they visited. So um, that, was, that was kind of the tone of, of the early 1800s, kind of throughout the, the, um, the late 1700s and, and early 1800s. So women were submitted to these asylums for a lot of reasons. And ones that I've actually tracked down through the medical records are things like um, depression, use of abusive language, nymphomania being a big one, mm-hmm. um, masturbation being a big one. And then there's another one and it's just hysteria. Mm-hmm. So hysteria is obviously a a word that most people know it's a byword for crazy mm-hmm. um, but what's interesting is that um it was it was hysteria was defined as really anything to do with the female organs mm-hmm. so it when it when it was when that word was first used it wasn't about a um a hysterical person it was that they thought this kind of so much genetic idea again of something wrong with the body something wrong with the mind they're as early as the egyptians we have papyrus of um the uterus in the wrong place in the body so they yeah. believed that your uterus could just get up go for a stroll around the place <laughs> around your body and that would cause you to to have a mental illness or display unusual symptoms okay. um and it was it was Hippocrates who gave it the name hysteria. So that's where we actually get that name from. Ah, And he advised, just in case anyone wants to try this, he advised abstaining from sex, burning herbs, and attempting to push the womb back to where it belongs. (laughs) I don't know what he meant by that, but look. Um, So that that kind of, that, that, that idea, Hippocrates' idea really took root. You know, we see it, from literally there's a mention of hysteria in nearly every century mm-hmm. in some text or some book there's there's a mention of hysteria in every single century so there was a guy called Seranus who wrote a treatise on women's diseases and who's kind of considered the founder of um, gynecology and obstetrics he said that women's disordered arise from the tolls of procreation and their recovery is encouraged by sexual abstinence perpetual virginity is a woman's ideal condition. Nice. Yeah, so um, we kind of have then like the Middle Ages with the witch trials and everything else. Um, the mainstream idea was that women are physically and theologically inferior. So therefore they were easier to be possessed and this would lead to symptoms that would have been called hysteria in an earlier century. Mm-hmm. And this continues through the 17th century. Um, and hysteria was a, basically a way to describe any woman 
who had a shy or nervous disposition, convulsive fits, who fainted regularly, had pain, hallucinations, deafness, anxiety, um, emotional distress, like anything was classified as hysteria. And then that's where we see this start to move to our modern model at a very early beginning with Freud, the idea of the psycho biopsychosocial model. Mm -hmm. And obviously we all know Freud, um, like he was so fucked up. Like his, he was so fucked up. Like he hated women. Like he was obsessed with this kind of Oedipus complex, you know, that, that, that uh, it was just like, but his ideas did and still do to some extent affect the treatment which people receive, you know? Mm-hmm. I remember like in our first podcast where we spoke about the um, the kind of taboo around periods, you know, and we spoke about how Freud believed that basically women go crazy when they have their periods and that they're, they're, they can't be, they can't be reasoned with. And then we had another psychologist who believed that like flowers would wilt if they were, hold, they were held by a menstruating <laughs> woman. And it's really anything to do with the female organs because I remember as I said at the start of this podcast the majority of medical um experiments or trials or anything like that were done on men and so there was no like you know there was no real gynecology until the 1800s and even then like the father of modern gynecology is a guy called J. Marion Sims and he he was a horrible, horrible person. He experimented on black women, slaves, and without anesthetic and like, because he didn't believe that they felt pain, you know? And even this is still affecting women, black women all over the world today because they're less believed that Mm. they're in pain and they're less believed that they're having a difficult birth. Mm. Um, And it's just like he's a, he could do, like we could do a whole nother podcast on him and the horrible person that he was and the horrible things that he did to people but this podcast is is about the the kind of um not taking seriously the women that are mentally ill and mm-hmm. accusing women who are not, not mentally, mentally Ill, Ill of being mentally ill yeah to such a point where you can lock them up yeah you know um and I just have one case here that um, happened in America and it kind of, in a way, um, began the climb down from women being forced into these institutions. And it was the case of a woman called Elizabeth Packard. Um, And this was in the late 1800s. She was admitted, committed to the state hospital by her husband because she disagreed with with his religious beliefs. She had her own opinion. She stepped out of the boundaries of what was allowed for a woman at the time. Um, After two years in the state mental hospital, her son came of age and was able to go in and see her. And she began a case to prove her sanity. Mm -hmm. The court agreed to hear her case and accepted her as being sane very, very quickly. They freed her from the hospital and... um, helped her to get a divorce from her controlling husband she then continued the fight for women's rights and until her death she um she lobbied for women who um were committed to institutions by their husbands and she you know went to institutions and trying to try to get these women out and try to get their stories out there yeah um 
and and that was what began the kind of climb down from the really bad days of say the, the late 1800s early 1900s and you know this continued into the 1950s like I often think of Sylvia Plath mm. and the horrible treatment that she was subjected to um because she was a very unusual person mm-hmm. and I mean that in the most complimentary way to Sylvia Plath she was an absolute genius a creative genius but she had real troubles and the treatment that she received was less then it would have been better if she received no treatment at all. Treatment is not, I can't even call it treatment. You know, yeah. it would have been better if they've just left her alone. Mm-hmm. Um, I and, think... and I think that we still... No, continue. I just think that we still see this today. Obviously, the, the developed countries are better for it, but it's still not great. And in developing countries, it, it's atrocious. The word that stood out for me there, because I read something... Um earlier on today that I think is interesting and I wonder if it was the same um the the idea to commit suicide the the using the verb to commit actually is a an old way of speaking because it came from a time when it was illegal to commit suicide so you were committing a crime if you were actually committing suicide so I wonder when we speak about people being committed is that same thing like someone committed like they were criminals in a way that they were being committed to to an asylum but the 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 other um thing that i think still is very very present today and i think we talked about it a lot when hillary clinton was like running for clinton for for clinton for president but and as i just mentioned there before the delegitimization of women with this notion of being crazy so like you'll often hear women complain that um, uh, they've been, a, they've been attri- attributed hysteria while men get passion. You know, like this, this display of emotion on women is interpreted as quote unquote craziness, you know, like the hysterical yeah. woman. And it is- a- That really started that really started in the 1800s. That's mm-hmm. when hysteria really became exactly what we would define hysteria as today. But it has a Previously really long that, route there. You know, like... Yeah, has a, but I yeah. suppose... I suppose just kind of... It matches in with the Victorian era because the Victorian mm-hmm. era was all about being completely straight-laced, not expressing your emotions in any way, shape or form, not even public hand holding wasn't really you know it was heavily frowned upon Mm. and part of the Victorian era was this great big sweep up of all of the people who were different or unusual or lived you know anybody who spoke out or um, lived on the streets or did sex work or anything that would um, be publicly seen they didn't want them they wanted them confined in the workhouse in the asylum Mm. in the industrial school because their society was so straight-laced and any tiny bit of emotion normal emotion was seen as hysteria and that has tracked to now when exactly like you said a man is passionate a woman is hysterical a man is stern a woman is a bitch it that's 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 where it's tracked from and it's interesting isn't it as well to consider the 
the English, I think we have a little bit of it here because maybe it's learned off them, but like the English still have the stiff upper lip culture that like, I mean, that's, that's, that has to be linked to that. Like where it was, it is seen better that you like, you don't show emotion in public and they kind of get embarrassed about openly showing, you know, the politeness and the niceness culture rather than like being, um, quote unquote, passionate, you know, keep calm and carry on is a very, very, is the word pertinent um, slogan for the UK. Uh, but yeah, I just think that that's, you see it so much with, with um, like AOC, for instance, you know, oh, she's crazy. Oh, she's just a crazy socialist, crazy. And it's a, de it's a delegitimization. It's interesting to see the, the, um, the root of it and the history of it, really. And I, I know that. No, go, go ahead. I know that you said, you know, um, we have a little bit of, of it here in Ireland, but I think that it, it's not just in Ireland, it's in a lot of places. Mm -hmm. Like Victoria, the Victorian era lasted for 60 years longer, really, mm -hmm. when you think about um, and how, how much of, of the world was ruled by the British Empire. I was going to say, time, yeah. One third of the world, the sun didn't set on the British Empire when Victoria yeah. ruled, you know. Yeah. And I, I find it really interesting because um, Victoria's husband, Albert, died when he was quite young and she went into a deep depression and she wore black for the rest of her life, you know. And they called the, that, that is where this real, now don't get me wrong, the 1700s was not a time when people were, you know, dancing naked under the moonlight, but they weren't as closed off and as unemotional as they were during Victoria's reign and it was because she herself was closed off and unemotional because her husband died and she was really really sad and I don't feel sorry for her in any way shape or form she's the famine queen but I'm just saying that 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 translated like you know that translated into onto her subjects and her at the time her subjects were one third of the world so this Catholic idea or Protestant. oh Protestant Protestant what I meant by the famine queen is that she ruled over Ireland during the famine and she did nothing for us. No, I know. I'm you know she thinking, was. Um, I was just thinking from the point of view of, I don't know what I was thinking. I just, uh, yeah, it doesn't matter. Continue. <laughs> no, I, I just think that the straight laced, no emotion um, is, is a huge part of why when, women express any emotion other than happiness really mm -hmm. they're considered to be hysterical and as you said we see this word thrown at female politicians and female figures in the media all the time and you don't see it thrown at men i think that it's not necessarily um i think the the where it applies to men then will be showing sadness or showing vulnerability so you know, like there is, it's not like men have escaped that at all. And I, I think there, a friend of mine, Katie, has said that like, or Kate even, that the reason that a lot of Trump supporters or Trump women are so uncomfortable with Joe Biden, for instance, is because he has been publicly vulnerable a lot, like publicly, you know, during his son's funeral. Bad. Huh? Of course. Yeah. Publicly sad. Yeah, publicly sad. And even when he speaks, sometimes like he... 
you know, he'll talk about things and you can see that he's like emoting, you know, whereas it's not, it's not, it hasn't been a, um, they, they react with disgust to that, um, which I think is very interesting. But yeah, I don't know, do you have much, do you have anything else to add? Um, I think the most- I just suppose, yeah. I just suppose that it, it, it all tracks, you know, and I yes. think that's kind of what this podcast was about. It's, it's to kind of show you that this has, this has really been, you know, a thousand years in the making. All of the problems that we see today track back mm-hmm. and they track back in particular to the Victorian era and the locking up of any woman who spoke her mind or um, explained, you know, any kind of overtly sexual behavior or displayed no interest in sex. That's another one. Mm-hmm. You know, you can be hysterical for having no sex, but you can also be hysterical because you're having sex. Mm-hmm. And that, that effort to control women, which was backed up by the poor laws, continued through um, to the Magdalene laundries in Ireland and to the mother and baby homes in the UK. Um, and to the industrial schools here as well. And, you know, that, that, has, that was only 30 years ago, that, not even 30 years ago did the last industrial schools in Magdalene Laundries close. And there is yeah. no way that in 30 years, our society has come on enough to accept that maybe that woman who's sitting in front of you telling you she's having a really hard time isn't just stressed out. Mm-hmm. Maybe she actually needs you to take her seriously and listen to what she has to say. Yeah, and even and even in the in the little instance where there's a there is a disregard of what women say because oh women, but you know what I mean. And when women and men do that, oh, we're like it's it's a, a dismissing because women are crazy. Like even today, with everything that's going on with the leak and with the and the seriousness of that situation. There was a guy put up a status on in Twitter and he's, he limited his comments, but it was like, women do my head in sometimes. They think that because you're not sharing, you don't support blah, blah, blah. And it was just like, really, that's what you're going to start with. Do you know, like this idea that women are doing your head and women are annoying. They're like, they are hysterical and they're like, this that is it just runs through so many things and it's very subtle in some instances and i just think that like pointing i think this is a really interesting exercise and a really interesting approach of finding a problem and showing you just how old it is it's the same as therapy like this is how i do therapy it's like there's a i've said countless times to you before there's a problem in today that has a a root, maybe not even in my own life. It is from my mother's life or my grandmother's life. And it lives in me, you know, like Simba. He lives in you, Simba. And I, like, I think in our place as a post-colonial nation, those roots run so deep. Mm -hmm. They run generations deep. And we see this, you know, um, in, in Ireland in particular, we see this around, we spoke about, you know, the stigma attached to being sexual. Mm-hmm. Um, we spoke about it with regard to um, the, the idea that particularly in, in Northern Ireland, where you have, you know, post 
Good Friday babies who are still so traumatized by the things that happened to their parents or to their grandparents. Mm -hmm. And the idea that gaslight, medical gaslighting or mental illness gaslighting is a modern phenomenon is just, it's so kind of ignorant mm -hmm. because we didn't come up with this in the last 50 years since, you know, second wave feminism. Like we didn't, that's not where this came from. Yeah. This has been happening since, since time immemorial really. And it still happens in a lot of developing countries. You know, if you look at their, at their mental health figures, it's women by and large are committed or, and locked up for displaying what in, in the West maybe is, is a treatable mental illness. Or maybe they're not mentally ill at all, but they just don't want to follow their culture's designs for them. Like the, uh, the framing of submissiveness as a survival strategy, of course, like that makes so much sense. I don't know why I never thought of that before, because it's, it, it's I always assumed I always assumed men put it on women but it's not necessary that men you know what I mean like it is that but it has it ha I, I feel like the idea that it was a an environmental thing it was a reaction to an environmental pressure makes so much sense it makes so much sense and it makes I me mean, look at it with a far more sympathetic mind if that makes sense like a far more sympathetic um or far more empathy like yes of course like to be submissive was to survive like i think we i de i definitely do i'm definitely like guilty of this look at women in the past and we're like why didn't you do this or why didn't you blah 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 not understanding our own levels of privilege and freedom that we have compared to them but um, like, but you, like you you see this you kind of see this a lot in you know how heavy Christendom was over Europe and you see this a lot it, like people were preaching this they were like it wasn't just the ha like obviously the hammer of witches was used by the mm -hmm. preachers that's where they got their material but you didn't have to necessarily have a copy of the hammer of witches to hear the rhetoric coming from it yeah. you know that it it was just, for example, in England, between, especially in the Jacobean period, it was illegal not to go to mass. Like if you didn't go to mass, yeah. you would be, you would be kind of hauled up and, and asked why, you know, and if you didn't have a legitimate reason, then you'd be punished for it. And so, you know, there were, you know, 500 people in your village and you're all made to stand there in your church and listen to this preacher talk for hours about how you should be on the lookout for women who um, speak their mind or women who are overtly sexual or anything that they felt like really and you would be there listening to this and so would your brothers and sisters and your mother and father and you know that's propaganda and propaganda changes people's minds and it changes people's behaviors and that's what happened and um, I totally agree with you there are so many women out there who learned they were trained to be submissive, not actually for a patriarchal reason, but for, from their mothers, for a survival reason, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. As you said, like, if you, if you wanna live, you have to be quiet and shut up, unfortunately. And 
for 99% of women back then, unless you had money or an amazingly different family, you were going to learn to be submissive and do what the men told you. Otherwise they would like, just for example, in the 14th century in Italy, it was perfectly legal to lock your wife in a six foot box for the rest of her life. You had to feed her and you had to clean out the box. But apart from that, you could lock her in the box. Like they used to wall women up inside rooms. They would take the door off and they would wall up the room and pass in food through a hatch. And the woman would spend the rest of her life in that tiny room. And that happened to lots of people. And it was perfectly legal. And if you saw your mother or your cousin or who, or even heard of a woman in your town that that happened to, you'd keep your head down. Yeah. Wow. I think that, I think it was just the other day that I was saying to my housemate, like, Jesus, the more I actually look, stand back and look, the more I realize that our societies have been in a massive cult like a cult that for so long a cult that is so expansive that goes into every aspect of your life that is so controlling that it is it is hard to even like it's so difficult to imagine that happening but it's it's even more difficult to understand how anyone survives that. And of course you survive by adapting. You survive by learning strategies of, of appeasing, like of people pleasing, of, um, you know, like all of those are hangovers. Like you don't upset your neighbor for fear he'd tell, tell on you or like Jesus Christ almighty. Yeah, it's, I, I just I feel like doctors and you know professionals who work basically anybody who works trying to help the public so doctors mental health professionals social workers all that kind of stuff like they need to be trained and to understand how how this all came about Mm -hmm. you know like why just for example like if you look at somewhere like Northern Ireland, and I have a particular interest in Northern Ireland, you, you see that they have one of the highest pregabalin uses in Europe. So pregabalin is like Valium and it makes you, you know, relax and happy. And they have one of the highest pregabalin uses in Europe because they are a traumatized mm-hmm. nation. They are so traumatized, you know, and south of the border in the Republic, like you and I grew up, thankfully post the troubles and they never really affected us you know but the the the, our history stuff like the famine like the famine's not that long ago it's only like it's not that many generations ago and anxiety worry you know i i often i often think like my great-great-grandmother taught my great-great-grandmother taught my grandmother how to worry and then Mm -hmm. she taught my mother how to worry and my mother taught me yeah and you see this not just in somewhere like Ireland, but you see this in a lot of nations that have had a traumatic, say, the last 150 to 200 years, because that's four generations. That's not that long ago. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? 
like your mother remembers her father who remembers his father you know it's not it's not out of living memory so you look at places you know like um like serbia like what they had to go through in the 90s is going to follow them for the next 200 years mm. you look at look at africa like look at some of the countries in africa like you know the congo and south africa and kenya where their their severe trauma is less than two generations ago somewhere like rwanda where it's still in people's active memories cambodia where people are literally like (laughs) it's not even like they're still alive like they were they're only in their 50s or 60s you know what i mean yeah and that to think that that wouldn't follow you through generations ignores all that we know about psychology. Yeah. You know, like it would not surprise me, you know, they have this new like CRISPR DNA thing where they can take your genes and like edit them and stuff. And I would not surprise me if in maybe 50 to a hundred years, they figure out that like anxiety and is genetic, you know, that you pick it up from your mother, you know? And like, yeah. say, if your mother is anxious when she's pregnant with you, or even before, that means you're going to be an anxious person mm-hmm. or whatever um, symptoms you have from the fact that somebody in your family had a traumatic experience, you know, it's like that trauma. Yeah, exactly. And that's that that's not a, that, like intergenerational trauma is not a, not a not a byword for just your mom and dad. Yeah. You know, yeah. it, it goes yeah. back a lot further than that. Yeah. And when you think that. The doctors who trained our doctors were trained by doctors who were trained by doctors. Mm-hmm. And so far back that these ideas of a woman being hysterical or a woman needing to be controlled either through confinement or through drugs, you know, three generations back. So that's the doc, your doctor, his, the doctor who taught him was taught by the guy who believed in hysteria and locking women up and everything else. Yeah. So it's really not that far-fetched to think that they would have a lot of implicit bias. And I'm yeah. obviously not saying that they do it on purpose, yeah. but like that's what implicit bias is. And you need, to, you need to look at your bias and you need to accept that you have it as we all do, everybody does. Mm-hmm. And you need to work to address it because otherwise this is going to follow us for another hundred years. This idea um, that women are crazy. Crazy woman. She's a crazy woman. Um, I think that you actually said something there that um, I very much ascribe to. Living memory. The, ide- like, the idea that just because like the person who went through the event, doesn't, it doesn't necessarily mean that someone who went through the event is um is still alive it's just that what happened to them is still within living memory it's still alive in somebody like you just said a minute ago you know your your mother not just no sorry i should say that not your mother but like a mother or a father who had a traumatic experience would that would affect their children, you know? Yeah. And we spoke about this in our Child Free podcast where I said, like, so many people who end up getting therapy only get it because their parents or their caregivers did not get it, mm-hmm. you know? And it's in Ireland, therapy really only has become a thing, what, 15 years, 20 years? Yeah, and only... You're really the normalizing of therapy. The, yeah. the idea that you can say, 
I go to therapy and nobody really bats an eyelid. Mm, like, I don't think we're there. Okay, fair enough. So that's, <laughs> that's even, that even proves my point even more. Yeah. Like nobody in Ireland in the 1950s and 60s, 70s was going to therapy, you know? Yeah. So if you don't sort out your own shit, how, like you're going to pass it on, you know? I think actually people, when they find out I'm I'm in therapy, they go, oh, it's actually encouraging for them because they Mm. think of me as quite like together. And they think they like, I think that's the perception that many people have of me anyway. Mm, Maybe not. But they're like, oh, she's quite together. And, you know, I'm like doing all these things and I'm quite happy and blah, blah. And it's like, oh, you're you're not you don't seem depressed. You know, like there is an acceptance of therapy but I don't think there's a normalization of therapy as a part of your normal life, like say going to the gym or getting exercise or eating well. Like that's how I regard therapy. Like it's part of, I mean, I need it more than maybe the average Joe, but like, I think everyone should be going just to, you know, just to, it should be part of your mental health, like going to therapy, not because I totally agree with you. Like, yeah. I think that if, if, if therapy was more acceptable, I don't think that there would be people needing so much therapy in 50 years or mm. whatever. You know, I think that when you look at people who, you know, I'll give you a good example. So I have a friend whose father is very strict and who is kind of, you know, up seven o'clock, like make your bed as soon as you get up. You can't wear pajamas around the house. And my friend knows that it's because his father, the Mm. granddad was extremely strict Mm. and the father does not see himself as strict compared to his own father. Yeah. yeah, Like he thinks I'm, you know, he thinks I'm, I'm just, I'm doing, this is, this is, this is nothing. This is nothing compared to what I had to deal with. Yeah. And I think there's an element of that among, Oh, sorry. I think there's an element of that among um, a lot of people with regard to uh, not seeking the help that they should be seeking. You know, they mm-hmm. think about people that they know or they think about people that they've met in their lives and they say, sure, I don't have it that hard or you don't yeah. have it that hard. Yeah. And you're like, that's not the point. Mm-hmm. Well, like, also, I feel like I was quite lucky in my in my journey because I hit rock I hit very very close to hot rock, rock bottom or like maybe not socially but certainly emotionally I was rock bottom so um I feel like a lot of the times these days I think people have to hit rock bottom before they're comfortable you know there's a certain amount of rock bottom in order to make you go that you need when people are just treading water when people are just treading water uh well I don't need to go you know yeah I agree I obviously the the cost is the cost on the waiting lists are very prohibitive you know in Ireland Mm -hmm. in particular the waiting lists are insane and if you can't pay privately then yeah like the government is all especially during COVID now the government's all about you know mind your head and I'm like it would help if you helped (laughs) us mind our own heads you fucks you know what I mean yeah they're like take a walk and I'm like yeah take a walk does not help when you have depression yeah like you need to talk to a professional um and i just feel that if more people understood that they don't actually have to feel that way 
-hmm. you know i think there are a lot of people unfortunately who are out there who are kind of resigned to the way that they feel and they they're not like you said they haven't gotten close enough they still feel shitty and they should like they they can feel better but they haven't gotten to that very very low place mm -hmm. where they actually put the hand out for help you know mm -hmm. they're yeah. just as you said you're just above that spot treading yeah. water yeah. and they don't know or how much better life can yeah and they don't understand how much better life can actually be for them yeah. because like 100%. it gets better you know yeah. Yeah. you know i know and a lot of people listening to this will know it gets better. It can always get better. Yeah. And you shouldn't have to wait until you're at the very bottom of that pool before you stick your hand up. Totally. Do you I know, think, there's this. Yeah. I, think oh, I was I, just going to say, yeah. go on. No, 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 no. I was just going to wrap it up, but say what you were going to say. I was just going to say there's this, um, there's this poem in Irish um, and it basically it's about a woman kind of falling into a deep depression because her husband um, has died. And she talks about going into um, a pleuris darka, a dark hole. And at the end, she says, um, like, when I pull myself out, let there be terra firma, let there be hard ground. And she's on about like, you know, I I have to like I have to get myself out of this hole because this is this was written a long time ago you know and she's like I have to get myself out of this hole but when I get out of the hole what's going to be there for me mm. and like let there be terra firma and I think that for a lot of people who are suffering like that terra firma is there you know mm. you just have to put your hand up and take the help to grab it mm. and get yourself back on get away from rock bottom and get back on solid ground have you ever heard of the poem My Life My Have you ever heard of the poem My Life in Five Chapters? No. So I sent this to a friend this morning because he's not having a good time. So chapter one. I walk down the street, there is a deep hole in the sidewalk. I fall in. I am lost. I am helpless. It isn't my fault. It takes forever to find a way out. Chapter two. I walk down the same street. There is a deep hole in the sidewalk. I pretend I don't see it. I fall in again. I can't believe I am in the same place, but it isn't my fault. It still takes a long time to get out. Chapter three. I walk down the same street. There is a deep hole in the sidewalk. I see it is there. I still fall in. It is a habit, but my eyes are open. I know where I am. It is my fault. I get out immediately. Chapter four, I walk down the same street. There is a deep hole in the sidewalk. I walk around it. Chapter five, I walk down another street. And yeah, man, I like that. It's good, isn't it? I like that. My yeah, therapist like read that. me that one day and she was like, and where are you? And I was like, I'm in chapter three. <laughs> she was like, yeah, you are getting into the hole. I was like, okay. <laughs> um but yeah and you can oscillate obviously but yeah the that's a good one isn't it do you like that one now it definitely is yeah i really like that and that's i just think that one. like you know there obviously are things that everybody does that's like self-sabotaging you know you 100%. you go somewhere you know it's going to upset you you listen to a song to make yourself cry like when you join you're sad and you listen to more sad songs i call that why do we do that as a like as as a pe like as a people why is that a rule like why I do call, we do that as a rule 
I call that emotional porn. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah, like I'm yeah. so sad, so I'm gonna listen to a really sad song. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah. terrible. But I I just think like we can do so much better, do you know. Yeah. Like we yeah. as as a society, as a people, we can do so much better. So to wrap it up, mm. we've been talking for ages. ages. Um, to wrap it up, just like to look, I think always to look at where these biases come from. Mm-hmm. Because if we can figure out where they come from, we can start to unpick them. Mm-hmm. I think that this this has probably been my favorite podcast we've done i found that so interesting um so thank you for doing all that research you did everything i was like yeah i'll just ask you questions but um no i think yeah I but will... i love doing research. i yes. love it like i love yeah. i love finding out stuff how finding yeah that's good i do i enjoy doing research as well it's just my my research is a little bit more like blah, 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 you know but I'm like a constant researcher, like my, my life, but then I don't take down anything. I've started actually making lists now. I've been like, okay, resources. And like, I put in links to stuff so that I can come back and be like, as Jackson said in his article of 1925, you know, like, so I can actually quote something and not be like, so there's this article I wrote, I read it was somewhere, I don't know where, I think it was written on toilet paper. Maybe it was the internet. But it said anyway, like I sound like Joe Rogan without Jamie. Do you know what I mean? Um, it's just an obsession of mine, though. It's like the yeah. history degree. Like the, mm-hmm. the, the historian in me is like, take it all down. Take even the all. stuff that doesn't matter. Yeah. Like yeah. We, should show, we should show our listeners sometimes how much of the podcast that you're like, no, no don't put this in like you're <laughs> the only person that cares about this and i'm like but ancient neolithic people did this and they're like circuit no no no, no. Take, it out. take it out take it out um okay yeah <laughs> <laughs> um so this week i'd like to remember mary wollstonecraft okay so mary wollstonecraft was like she's an og feminist so she was born in, um, she is, honestly, she was born in 1759 and she died in 1797. She was from London. So her parents were very normal, um, but she managed to get herself an education. So I think that her own father must have been supportive of women's education, even though she doesn't, there's no real information on who he was or anything, mm-hmm. but she had an education herself and she worked as a school teacher and a governess she became a writer she lived in like a really turbulent time so she lived through the huge leap forward that was industrialization she lived through the french revolution the american revolution and very importantly for mary wollstonecraft the gothic period so she was um she became a writer and she hung around in coffee shops like this is the age of enlightenment you know so it's all about coffee shops and discussing scientific ideals and she hung around in coffee shops with the likes of um thomas paine thomas paine wrote uh, the rights of man and he also wrote common sense which was uh, the the common sense in particular literally the impact of it on the american revolution cannot be overstated mm-hmm. he common sense kind of rallied a huge amount of american men to the american revolutionary cause so she hung around with him. She hung around with um, Thomas Holcroft, who was a British playwright. She hung, she hung around with William Blake. 
um, William Wordsworth and William Godwin. Um, and during this time, she would hear them talking about all of the matters of the day and she never heard them talk about women's rights, you know, and she was sitting there just as intelligent as they were, just as educated as they were, with just as much to say. And while they listened to her, don't get me wrong, they weren't really interested in writing on what she had to say. Mm. So she um, traveled to France to witness the revolution because she knew that she was living in, you know, an insane time. And she really believed that the only way to liberate women is to liberate all classes of women. Mm-hmm. There is no point in liberating upper class women who can read and write if working class women can't read and write. She was really big into education. Um, So she traveled to France and had a daughter there with an American um, out of wedlock. She wrote furiously in the defense of the revolution and she said that she'd watched the king being fetched for the scaffold in a hackney cab. Um, When Robespierre literally uh, fetched the king and chopped his head off with a guillotine. Um, she, so a guy called Robespierre took over and he began this thing called the reign of terror where he just went around chopping people's heads off. Um, Mm. so like it was a really dangerous time to be in France. So she left because she was a foreigner and she was afraid that they were going to chop her head off. Um, so she returned to London and she married the writer William Godwin. And that year that she returned to London, she wrote a really important book called A Vindication on the Rights of Women. So it's like the first feminist, um, one of the very first feminist books that was published and widely read. So in it, she basically, um, she rallies for the the cause of educating all women. And she said that um, she rallied against male writers of the time who argued that women were just there to be looked at. And she said the only equality that women, the only way women will achieve equality is when they are educated in an equal standing to men to men and she knew what women's education was like because she was a governess herself Mm -hmm. she knew how ineffective it was and how it just taught them to say french phrases play piano and look pretty Mm. so she um the the vindication on the rights of women was a big hit and she continued writing um but none of her other stuff had the hit that that had and that was until she wrote a novelistic sequel to A Vindication on the Rights of Women, um, which was called Maria or the Wrongs of Women. So while she was writing it, she became pregnant and she died of septicemia after giving birth to her second daughter, Mary Shelley, who went on to write Frankenstein. Um, Yeah, so she was was Mary Shelley's mother. um, So she's an even bigger, you know, an even even bigger deal than she already was um, because Mary Shelley was obsessed with her mother. And okay. so she should be. Wow, because a little also... bit of trying to bring, you know, something back to life. Yeah, I've always really thought common that as well. theme, yeah, definitely. Yeah, and all very unusually for the time, William Godwin was 100% behind his wife. He fully believed in women's liberation. He fully believed that women should be educated. And after she died, he wrote to a friend, I firmly believe there, did not, there does not exist her equal in the world. That's a very strong statement for a, a man in the 1700s to make about a woman, you know? Mm. I think he was absolutely devastated by her death and he posthumously um, published her, her book, which told the story of a woman, Maria, who was forcibly committed to an asylum by her husband. 
And this is where we start to see the turn, okay? So we start, she, she, she details Maria's life, um, who, um, Maria is, is committed to the asylum by her husband and makes friends with an asylum worker, Jemima, who, which kind of encouraged the cross. Jemima? Jemima, I know, terrible name. Jemima, I, I love like it. it. She didn't. <laughs> <laughs> so she, she, she makes a point of showing how the two women working class and upper class are stronger together through mm -hmm. this novel um, and she equated marriage to unfree labor and wrote a wife being as much a man's property as his horse or his ass she has nothing to call her own so through through the exploration of the characters backstories like the bride price which is very common of five thousand pounds Wollstonecraft comments on the way in which female sexuality is defined and interpreted and by extension controlled by bourgeoisie institutions her ideas were carried to America and took root there with the women's movements such as the Charterists and Margaret Fuller who wrote Women in the 19th Century and sparked huge debate in America in around 1845. And the reason that I'm picking Mary Wollstonecraft for this week is because last week there was a statue of Wollstonecraft erected in the grounds of a Unitarian church in Stoke on Newington, in Stoke Newington, where Wollstonecraft attended lectures. It caused a bit of controversy. Now, um, it's 10 foot high, silver, and depicts an idealized female body naked, emerging from what seems to be a vaguely female figure in the form of an abstract wave. So it's like, it's, it's kind of like a torso, but not really bent backwards. And then there's um, a, a female, a very idealized female figure, um, kind of has her hand up, and is coming out of the kind of female form below. And mm. there were some people that said that that's exactly what Mary Wollstonecraft would have wanted because she believed that your body doesn't define your sex, your gender doesn't define your intelligence, your capabilities. And then there were other people arguing that it should have been a, a statue of Wollstonecraft as she was dressed mm. properly. Mm. So, oh, okay. I just think, I don't know how I feel about the statue, if I'm perfectly honest. I think if you're listening, obviously, you can look up the statue and you'll see what I'm talking about. What I don't do know I, how I feel about I'll, it. I'll look it up there and I'll keep my opinion. What's, the, what's, how would I put it in? Murray Wollstonecraft. Wool, Wollstone. W-O-L-L-S-T-O-N-E-C-R-A-F-T. So she went to this Unitarian church to um, listen to people preach their ideas. You know, it was a very revolutionary time, time of the Enlightenment. Um, and because the house that she lived in doesn't exist anymore, they felt that this was a more appropriate place to put the statue of her because she spent a lot of time there. But there were people saying that the statue was highly inappropriate for a woman who argued that you shouldn't look at what's on the outside. You should take a person for their personality and their intelligence mm, that doesn't mean that she that you don't have to you know what i mean like that just that's that's quite cool oh, no i'm just yeah yeah, like, yeah. it's kind of a bizarre argument she's a big old bush on her i like it she does i that's yeah that's one thing that i was like yes thank you now it was sculpted by a woman i should point out i think that's very interesting 
I think it's very interesting. And you know what? The fact that it has everyone talking about it means it has done its job. Definitely. Do you know what I mean? Like, otherwise you just have a, like a statue of an old, old woman and people would be like, oh yeah, it's just a statue of an old woman. Whereas now you have people being like, oh, why is that statue of that naked woman on there? You know what I mean? And she definitely deserves like a lot more recognition than she gets, you know? Mm. Um, like her, her ideas, they didn't have as big an impact in England as they should have, but they had quite a big impact in America because of Margaret Fuller, who wrote a, a book inspired by Mary Wollstonecraft's work, you know? Mm-hmm. And her, her ideas were, in, in a way, they were the basis for the end of locking women up in asylums in um, America. I just, and yeah. America. I think that is us after two and a half hours. I think we'll wrap it up there. So I thank you we'll so much. Yeah, we'll wrap it up. I think we'll wrap it up. Thank you so much for listening. And please check out all our socials. And if you want to see the incredibly long document about the Neolithic farmers, please do let me know. Yeah. I'll be more than happy to share it with you. Yeah. Even though Christina is like, no. Anyway, wrap it up. We're wrapping it up. It's wrapped. We're wrapped. It is wrapped. It's yeah. ready for Christmas. Put it under the tree. Yes. Thank you guys so much for listening and we'll see you soon.